when you're dealing with true crime, you have a very savvy, knowledgeable audience. A lot of people out there who are really into that genre know a lot about it. So especially if you don't have that background, my advice is really do your homework. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci. And if you recognize that sound effect, you might really appreciate today's episode because for the first time ever, I have with us an author of true crime. Serena Strauss received her BA in art history and political science from Barnard. And then she graduated from Fordham University Law School. And then she worked for five years at the Bronx District Attorney's Office, where she prosecuted sex crimes and child abuse cases. After leaving BXDA, she published a true crime memoir, Bronx DA, True Stories from the Sex Crimes and Domestic Violence Unit. This book was published by Barricade Books in 2006. And in 2010, her book sold as a TV pilot to CBS Paramount. And now Serena is going to speak with us today about her process of writing her true crime memoir and also about her work in the Bronx DA's office and how actually some of her stories have been portrayed in some popular crime TV shows. Serena now lives in the Hudson Valley with her husband and two children who are also budding writers and two naughty Labrador retrievers, as well as a couple of barn cats. Now, beyond her memoir, Serena is also an author of novels, and she is now working on the sequels to her debut sci-fi novel, Reinception. When she's not writing or lawyering, Serena loves to scuba dive, take photographs, and travel off the beaten path. She'll swap diving or courtroom stories with you all day long or happily talk about books, writing or reading them, which is what she's here to do with us today. So please join me in welcoming Serena. So Serena, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Well, I'm really excited to have you. You know, we've never had a true crime author on before. And I think that this is a really interesting area. And who knows how many listeners we might have who are imagining writing true crime. And I want to start off because something that occurred to me, and I don't even know if this is accurate, but it seems to me, and I'm not super familiar with the genre of true crime. So I want you to educate me a little bit here. Because it seems to me that a lot of people who write true crime weren't necessarily in the field, if you will, (laughs) of law enforcement or 
prosecution or prosecutorial function or whatever. But a lot of times they're more just almost like a journalistic kind of a take. But you actually worked in domestic violence and homicide in, of all places, the Bronx, right? Which is not exactly a low crime area. (laughs) So really intense, right? So first of all, before we get into that, just my initial question is, is this accurate? Is it more like a typically a journalistic kind of genre and you're more of an exception or am I just misinterpreting it? Yes. So, well, I can tell you a little about my career direction because I think you have it right. So my first book was in true crime and it was about my experience at the Bronx District Attorney's Office. And I do think a lot of lawyers become writers and prosecutors in particular are storytellers. And yeah, yeah, that's what we do. But my most recent book was actually science fiction. And there are a lot of elements of the law in there. But I would say that would be the more unusual path. There's definitely some other prosecutors or former prosecutors out there writing crime novels. But I don't think many of us segue into fiction, except people like John Grisham, obviously. (laughs) Well, I was going to say that like the most famous attorney, right, that I can think of who's, but he writes crime fiction that is really connected to the law, right? Because usually his protagonist is an attorney or something like that. Right. Yeah. And my book about my experience at the Bronx DA's office was, I would call it true crime memoir. So it was about my experience there and about the cases that I had. And my novel that just came out is set 100 years in the future. And there is a lot of kind of interpretation of the law and thinking about unintended consequences and, Mm -hmm. you know, how decisions we make today or laws that we pass today can have unintended consequences on our future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what had you decide to write the true crime DA memoir or true crime book. What was the Bronx DA is what it's called. True stories from the sex crimes and domestic violence unit. Right. Yes. So I wrote that book. Some people I think go into a job like that thinking that they want to write about it someday. I didn't really go into the job thinking that it was going to turn me into a writer. And I was mostly working in crimes against children. And I actually started writing poetry just as a for catharsis, really, just a way to kind of cope with the kinds of things that I was seeing and dealing with, kind of processing the trauma in a way. Mm -hmm. And those poems started segueing into me starting to think more about writing something more comprehensive. And there wasn't a lot out there about that kind of work in that genre. I mean, there's a lot of fiction out there, obviously, about criminal law. But there wasn't a lot out there about actually the experience of being a prosecutor and handling those types of cases. Yeah. So I guess what I'm thinking about, I would imagine that sex crimes and domestic violence would be hard enough. But when you're primarily prosecuting crimes against children, it would have carry a whole nother level of trauma, not just for the victim, but for for you and the team that's investigating Yeah. I mean, when I was doing that work, I didn't have kids yet. I wasn't married yet. And there's definitely, I would say, definitely have some post-traumatic stress of some kind of mild form, but that, you know, I didn't really understand or process that way. But now that I'm a parent, (laughs) it's definitely 
something that has impacted me in some ways in my day-to-day life, hopefully not too much at this point. But yeah, it was very traumatic work, but it was also very rewarding work. And it did help me kind of segue into a lot of work protecting children. So I became a lot more interested in being proactive about Mm. protecting children and got very involved in that and spent a lot of time, yeah, in the area of protecting children. And also in the book that I've just written, it's something that I think about a lot. I think there's a lot in there about privacy and consent and thinking today about the kinds of tools that we have to protect our children and monitor our children like GPS and the ability to look at their phones and their chats. When I'm exploring what that looks like 100 years in the future, where I imagine a world where all chipped and everything's monitored and recorded and all that, there's a lot to think about in terms of what's going too far and how far would we go to protect our children? And what does protecting our children mean? That can mean very different things to different people. So yeah, what's too far and what's justifiable in order to protect our children? Yeah. I remember when my kids were young, it was before GPS was really widely accessible, right? So the thing at that time was to put your toddler on a leash and uh, and I'm not kidding. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was too far. (laughs) So I never leashed my children, but yes, I did think about it though, right? Because as a parent, you know... You want, yeah. you want to be able to prevent them from running off. <laughs> but yeah, I do remember that was a thing for a while. And I thought, yeah, that's a bit too far for me. So I wanted to ask you, and I do remember now the question I was thinking of. I wanted to ask you, because I have found this comes up a lot when people are writing a memoir about a difficult thing that they went through. Did you find the process of writing the memoir a healing process for you? And if so, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I guess it was somewhat healing. It was definitely, like I said, cathartic. There was a lot to process and to deal with. And it helped me to, I think a lot of times when you're in a job like that, you put up a wall, you have to be very professional. It's not your role to get close to the victims. We had resources at our disposal to refer people for help, for example, but it was our job to prosecute the case or determine if the case should be prosecuted and then to move on to the next one. And it is a really hard thing when you're dealing with cases like that to try to be objective about it and not get emotional about it and not get attached to people. So I did kind of really want to be honest about how difficult that could be, not knowing what happened to people whose lives you were invested in maybe for a year until a case went to trial not knowing what happened to them afterwards, especially with kids. Are they going to be okay? Are they going to get the kind of help that they need? So it was emotionally very draining. Yeah. And I can imagine the need to maintain that barrier, the need to maintain some sort of as much objectivity as you can, right? And then it's not that you're not having the emotions, right? It's just that you don't really have room to acknowledge them or to process those emotions is what I would imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you have to be professional, you have to be objective. There's also a difference between what you know as a prosecutor and what you can present to a jury. The law sometimes prohibits Mm -hmm. you from sharing everything that you know. So 
you might, for example, have a lot more knowledge at your disposal about a case and about the history that can then go to a jury. And that obviously impacts your ability to get a conviction or get justice for somebody. So often the conversations were about what was the right path forward. Sometimes you couldn't prosecute a case, even if you believe a victim. Sometimes going to trial isn't the right path. Sometimes people need help. And we also had that tool at our disposal as prosecutors to help not only victims, but defendants. You know, sometimes defendants aren't necessarily evil doers. Sometimes they're people who need help in their own ways. So we did have a lot of tools at our disposal to handle different kinds of matters differently, depending on the circumstances. But yeah, it could be very hard to be objective and try to make the decision that was the best decision for the case, even if sometimes that wasn't what, for example, the victim or the victim's family wanted. Yeah. What would you say out of your experience you know, in the Bronx DA's office, do you see any correlation? Because I know you had to interview a lot of witnesses, a lot of them children. I'm curious, and you probably met quite a few characters, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Work. So how did that experience inform your novel writing? Great question. Yeah, I always said that when being a prosecutor wasn't incredibly sad, it was incredibly hilarious. You definitely meet a lot of really interesting characters, really fun people. I think in my novel writing, so writing near future science fiction is a very different thing. And I think we all bring what we know into our characters, even if we're inventing them. So I have a lot of like preambles in the chapter that are kind of telling you what the law is in the future and what's going on in the world. And there's definitely snippets in there that are reminiscent of some of the characters that I came across, for example, Mm -hmm. people who worked in the prison system and things like that. So a lot of color, it makes me think a lot about language. So in this book, I invented a language, but working In a place like the DA's office, you kind of have your own language, you have your own acronyms. In a place like the Bronx, you're pulling in a lot of, you know, different languages. So that informed a lot of my thinking about how much more of a melting pot a place like New York might be 100 years in the future, how that will inform how we speak to each other, what our language is, what we look like. Yeah, I mean, it's a very diverse environment in a lot of ways. Yeah, and New York is really such the ultimate melting pot, right? Like you're a stone's throw from any country. If you talk about the people that you're likely to just be in one subway car, right? I mean, you're going to get like a whole international contingency. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess your knowledge of the law clearly would inform your novel writing as well, right? Since you're doing this futuristic look, and it seems like a lot of it is really focused on, on the law. As yeah, far the as like core central theme. Yeah, that was definitely pretty central to it. In the background of the story is a case that was in that time period, a very seminal case that set up case law about. So the book is really about uh, we have the technology to modify ourselves, and parents therefore have the technology also to modify their children. And in the background is this case that was a seminal case that set the law about how parents can or cannot modify their children, what kind of consent they need. So 
my legal background obviously informed that a lot. And I do think every time you hear about a new law being passed to cater to a specific situation or something that happened, I think a lot about unintended consequences. And that's kind of our jobs as lawyers is to predict how things will play out and what the ramifications are. So for example, there was a case a few years back, I think that the child's name was Kaylee. I might be wrong, but she had gone missing and Mm -hmm. the family didn't report her missing. And as a result of that, there was a big push to pass a law named after her to make it mandatory that you report a child missing within a certain amount of time. And on the surface, that sounds like a great idea. You know, who wouldn't want that to happen? But if you start exploring what are the unintended consequences of that, there can be fallout that would be negative. For example, maybe somebody who didn't report for good reason, maybe their child goes off a lot. It's an older teenager and that, you know, usually everything's fine, or they didn't know that the child was missing for some reason because they were with a relative. Maybe then they're going to be afraid to report because you've just criminalized it. So yeah, I think about that a lot, what we do today and what the fallout from that is going to be. Yeah, I think that those are really legitimate questions too, because especially with teenagers, my God, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) all right. So I just noticed this. So your book in 2010 sold as a TV pilot? Yes. So Bronx DA was sold as a TV pilot to CBS Paramount. It would have been fictionalized, but largely based on my cases. And I was working with a TV writer on that. So It was very exciting for it to get picked up. CBS that year only had one slot and I lost it to J.J. Abrams, which is hard to fault them for. (laughs) But I think it would have been a great show. I wish it had been picked up. I think it would have too. Yeah, that's really cool. What was that process like for you? Because I know we had a guest on a little bit, a little while back, but I think it was earlier this year. This is like her core business, it's right, is helping to connect authors with books to potential outlets with, through television or movies or even YouTube now, which is you can monetize and or vice versa, right? Like taking a show and then converting it. So share with us a little bit more about your experience with that and how that went down, because I think our listeners would be very interested. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. I, actually, somebody I went to law school with put me in touch with a TV writer he knew who was looking for projects and he had read Bronx DA and he thought that she might be interested. So, you know, we worked together. I worked with a professional TV writer and she, it was interesting for me because I I obviously had no knowledge of that world. So we went out to LA and we pitched the book together and she had the credibility from the writer's perspective. And I had the credibility of being somebody who'd be on the team and bring authenticity Mm. to the project. So yeah, it was just kind of luck that we ended up together and we stayed in touch over the years. She's actually gone on to have a really excellent career in TV writing. She was um, an executive producer on American Horror. I, I think if we had been pitching oh, the book a couple of years later after she you know, knocked it out of the park a few times, <laughs> we would right. have had a better chance. A lot of it, yeah, you no know, kidding. so much of it is timing. Yeah. Some of the stations we talked to had just had flops with other 
legal shows and we're afraid to take a risk on it. So even if you have a great project, sometimes it's about timing and who you're working with. But I definitely had the benefit of a professional with me to kind of guide me through the process. And you would have had some stiff competition with a certain brand of the iconic SV, you know, Law and Order SVU brand, which is like they have a whole chunk of spinoffs just in that special victims show. Yes. Alone. And uh, so did that come up? I would have, or I guess that that's NBC, right? So CBS would have maybe wanted to have them. Well, you know, they say there's shows are ripped from the headlines. And mm-hmm. when you're at the DA's office, you will often find people from those shows sitting in the courtrooms. So when I was working at the DA's office, we often had actors visiting to kind of see how we worked or talk to prosecutors to try to have more of an authentic character. They were taking cases that we were working on and they obviously make them a little more, you know, exciting and sexier for the episode. But several of my cases from my book ended up as episodes on shows. So I, you know, really, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, tweaked a little bit, but recognizable as mine. So I guess when you pedal your book all over Hollywood and you have so many people making true crime shows, it's, you know, <laughs> your content is going to creep onto the TV. <laughs> right, right. One way or another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, now it's like, I want to go back and watch some of these old law and orders. That, and I want to read after reading your book and see, <laughs> I want to see like, if I recognize anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very, very cool. All right. So what advice would you give to a true crime writer? Because obviously your book was very well received or you would never have been able to even get a meeting with uh, Paramount, even get pilot signed. So uh, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to write true crime? You know, it's interesting because now I have the experience of having launched and sold a book that was nonfiction and now currently launching a book that's fiction. And the processes are very different. I think when you're dealing with true crime, you have a very savvy, knowledgeable audience. A lot of people out there who are really into that genre know a lot about it. So especially if you don't have that background, Mm -hmm. my advice is really do your homework. Make sure that you're working with somebody who is a professional in that area just to make sure that everything you're saying is accurate and current, because certainly your readers are going to catch anything that isn't true or that doesn't ring true. You know, I also think writing anything, make sure it's professionally edited. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Amen to that, sister. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think selling nonfiction is actually a much easier path than selling fiction. Why? I'm not entirely sure, but you know, you have a clear message and a clear story. It's To me, it's easier to write what story you're going to tell from start to finish instead of having to invent it. So then it's your responsibility again to make sure that it's accurate and that it's well-written and that you're working with people who are giving you the right kind of advice and feedback. So what would be some of the special considerations with true crime writing nonfiction that might not be necessarily be the case with just regular nonfiction even? Because it sounds to me like there's some very specific things that you ran into that you had to make sure you had right. Uh, well, my book, even though it was about my personal experience, I was writing about something that had happened in my past. And my 
recollections wouldn't necessarily have been entirely accurate. So I did go and pull all the transcripts for all of my cases that I talked about and made sure that my recollection of what happened in the case was accurate, that if I was quoting anything, I was quoting it accurately. So the good news, especially if you're writing something more recent, is there's a lot of information out there that you can pull. There's a lot of content. There's a lot of ways you know, to validate your information. Mm-hmm. If you're dealing with older cases or cold cases, it can be a little tricky. And then I think a lot is about authenticity, mm-hmm. making sure you know, if you're talking about a case 50 years ago, you're not talking about DNA evidence. If I'm talking about a case that I handled when I was at the DA's office, I'm talking about it taking a week to get, you know, or more to get something back. If you're talking about a case now, you're talking about getting things back within 24 hours usually. So Hmm. I think you just have to make sure you're keeping current with what are the laws? What's the technology? Have you vetted your sources? Have you pulled all the information you can pull? Anytime there's a trial, there's a transcript that's public information. That helps, right. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. But I'm also thinking because, for example, like you have the trial transcript, that's public information, right? So there's obviously no barrier to printing that or repurposing that in any way, you know, in your book. But you also, like you said, you had lots of information that you couldn't bring up at trial. Some of it could be potentially libelous, right? You interviewed people and obviously did not share everything that they told you at trial. So not everything that you know is public record. So were there any special considerations you had to apply in dealing with that kind of information? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So I made a decision when I wrote the book to not use anybody's real name. So even if it was Ah. a convicted defendant. I didn't use the real name. And the only time I did use someone's real name is if it was like a colleague and I was only saying something positive or talking about my relationship with them and I made sure they were okay with it. Right. But I just decided I did want to be able to be really truthful. And I just decided that even if it was somebody who was convicted, you never know what's going to happen. You don't know if they're going to appeal. You don't know what's mm-hmm. happened in their lives since then. Right. So I felt like that gave me the ability to be a little more authentic. And I did talk a lot about, without saying specific cases, I talked a lot in vague terms about how much evidence you can have that the jury doesn't know. So, And those rules can vary from state to state. So somebody reading my book in Virginia and my saying, well, I wasn't allowed to introduce any evidence of prior crimes, even though there were prior crimes, they might say, well, that's not true. You can introduce evidence of prior crimes, but in New York, you can't. Right. So yeah, some of it depends on the state that you're in. So Mm -hmm. also to your earlier question, knowing those things is really important for authenticity Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, I think this will be really helpful to any of our listeners who are thinking about getting into writing true crime. What would be the like a a piece of sage advice that that we maybe that you haven't maybe shared yet for somebody who wants to break into writing true crime? You know, I think my best advice is get to know people who are doing things in the area that you want to write about. I think that it's a generous community in terms of being willing to support and share information and share time. Prosecutors and cops love telling war stories. Like nothing (laughs) makes us happier than people asking us to sit down and we'll go on and on about our our cases and everything we did. 
So yeah, you can find people who will help you and talk to you. You can go into a courtroom and watch a case. I don't know anymore. Precincts used to be pretty open about allowing ride-alongs. And it, it was always really interesting to go on a ride-along with police officers. Um, and and I also think that's really valuable for having a deeper understanding of what they do day-to-day. I, I don't know if they allow that anymore. Um, but if they do, it's it's interesting and it's usually very fun. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> it can be scary too, depending on what say, happens. <laughs> sometimes like the, the most exciting might not be fun, but. <laughs> yeah, you'll get something to write about. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so who would you say when you're talking about true crime nonfiction, who would you say t- might emerge as like, who are the unsung heroes in this, uh, in these stories? Who are the unsung heroes in the stories? Well, who are Um, the unsung heroes in this picture, I guess I should say? I think it depends what you're writing about. I think that a lot of people in crime are unsung heroes. I think most of what you hear on the news is negative. So maybe you hear about prosecutorial misconduct or police misconduct, but most of the people who are out there doing the job day to day are doing it because they care about it and because they want to do the right thing and they're passionate about it. And I think defense attorneys are unsung heroes. It's hard work. You don't always get to pick and choose your clients and you're standing for something that is very much fundamental to the American system of justice. You know, prosecutors, they come out of law school, they could be doing something else and making a lot more money. And it's something that you have to be passionate about and you sacrifice your quality of life in a lot of ways and it can be emotionally draining and most of them are trying to do the right thing. You know, and I think police officers too, there's good people and bad people everywhere, but most of the officers I met were good people who were trying to do good and make, you know, make the Bronx a safer place. And I think victims, people who come forward and have the courage to share their story, especially when you're dealing with something like sex crimes or crimes against children, it takes a lot of courage to come forward and share your story. You know, they would certainly be the biggest heroes, you know, yeah, in these stories. Confront, you know, the person that assaulted you. It, yeah. You have to in court, right? Like there's, there's no way around that really. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You have a right to confront your accuser and especially for a child. Yeah. It's asking a lot. And I'm glad laws have been passed that make it a little easier to bring cases against people when you're older for things that happened when you were younger, because it is a lot. Kids are very good at keeping secrets and it's a lot to ask them, you know, to come forward and to speak in court. Especially when the person who assaulted them is sitting in the courtroom. Yes. That'd be really tough. Really, really tough. Okay. So before I give you the last question, I'd like to have you tell us a little bit more about your novel. Tell us where can people find your latest book and 
tell us a little bit more about that because you've been so generous to come on and share <laughs> about what I really wanted to talk about the most. So now I'm going to give you a chance to talk about your new book. <laughs> yeah, no. And I obviously loved working at the DA's office. It was the best job I ever had, the most rewarding I ever had. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. <laughs> and my latest novel is called Reinception, and it's a near future science fiction novel. So it's set 100 years in the future in New York City where we have the technology to modify human behavior. And really, the story is about a young woman's experience with reinception. And she is now 20 and for the first time in her life has the right to modify herself in a world where most people are modified, but her parents had decided not to modify her. So it touches on a lot of issues about privacy, about consent, um, again, about unintended consequences. And if you are a fan of crime, there is plenty in there for you as well, because we can modify criminals and pedophiles and we can do all kinds of things with this technology. And the world is kind of grappling with how do you deal with a technology like that, that has tremendous power for good, but also tremendous power for evil? Wow. That sounds really compelling, really compelling. And can we find this on Amazon? Where else can we find this? Yeah, it's available everywhere. It's on Amazon. There's an audiobook. It's available on audible.com. And this was a very hard book to narrate. I invented an entire language and <laughs> the oh, <wow>. narrator was <laughs> fantastic. She's right. so good. She did such a good job. So and it's set in modern New York, right? Futuristic New York or Yeah. Right? So, so to invent a new language and have to do it with a New York accent, it's gotta be even harder. <laughs> well, she actually it's a great point. She actually created an accent that it's kind of a mashup of I would call it Scottish ex Singaporean. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of for seeing my kids recently had to write something in school about is New York more a melting pot or a tossed salad? And <laughs> I thought that was a really interesting question. And I envision the people of New York a hundred years in the future to, you know, truly be, you know, very diverse and multicultural and, and multilingual, but that unfortunately we find other ways to, you know, separate ourselves and have strife. Well, it sounds very compelling. All right. So last question, my signature final question, which I usually remember to ask and this today <laughs> I have, so that's wonderful, which is what have I not asked you that you would love to answer? Ooh, you asked a lot of great questions. I mean, I guess the question I get asked a lot is being a lawyer and a mom and somebody who is writing nonfiction, how did I get into fiction and how do I find the time? And, you know, I think you find the time to do the things that you love. And I write early mornings and I spend a lot of time writing, sitting in cars and parking lots while I'm waiting for my kids to come out of whatever they're doing. And I think the value of being a writer when you're a lawyer is that we are storytellers. We do learn a lot about writing and a lot about analysis. So I think we come into the game with an advantage of a lot of our training is about writing, but also especially having been a prosecutor, I found early on that as soon as I got a case, I started thinking about my closing statement. I was already mm -hmm. thinking in my head, what is the story I'm going to tell the jury and how am I going to put all these pieces together? 
So going from that to fiction is, it's just a matter of instead of taking things that have already happened, imagining things that could happen, but using those same tools that we use in the courtroom, really. Fantastic. Well, what a great question to answer. And again, (laughs) so much value for our listeners. So Serena, this has just been so interesting and fun to have you here today. So I just want to thank you again for being with us today on The Author's Corner. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 